I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Nothing else matters, not the mortgage, not the store, not my team and all their bullshit. For those 10 seconds or less, I'm free. On your mark. Get set. Welcome to now playing Fast and Furious Retrospective Series. It's gonna be an all-time of the night. Bet you're gonna enjoy this. Hosted by Arnie. But man, I don't just think outside the box. I tear it up. It's my thing. Stuart. You're the last person in the world I expected to show up. And Jacob. Like it or not, you and your friends are a part of it now. I don't have friends. I got family. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers, harsh language, and incentive to drive beyond the posted speed limit. I'm going to enjoy what happens next. Listener discretion is advised. Only live once. Let's do it. Talking over the race. Today we're discussing Universal Pictures presents Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. A lot of presentation here. Mm. Starring Dwayne Johnson, Jason Statham, Idris Elba, Vanessa Kirby, and Helen Mirren. Directed by David Leach. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm what you might call a champagne problem. And Stuart. Abracadabra, this is the host that brings the magic, Jacob. I am so mad, guys. We have covered a lot of comic book movies. I read this strip constantly in the 80s. Am I supposed to think Statham is a six-year-old boy and The Rock is a stuffed tiger? (laughs) Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, okay. However, that movie might actually be better with that casting. (laughs) I was about to say, worst comic book movie ever. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I knew this was Fast and Furious. It's the Fast and Furious movie Vin Diesel feared they would make. The one without him and his family. You mean part two, part three? (laughs) Well, he was too good for it then. Remember, he had other things going. Now, we don't see Vin too much these days. And I do remember one of the few things I remember about previous Fast and the Furious entries was that this was a real sticking point. He did not want anyone to outshine him now that this has become his sole meal ticket. Hey, there was the last witch hunter, and I saw him in a rubber Groot jacket at the premiere of Endgame. Yeah, I suppose you could argue he's been busy saying I am Groot. But by and large, I know he's got something coming out next year and some kind of his own, I think it's an original superhero movie, Bloodshot. Ever heard of that one? No. Okay. But anyway, he's got bloodshot, but he had bloodshot eyes when he found out (laughs) that I believe it was going to be The Rock, Statham, and Charlize Theron were going off to make a spinoff. That's what I had heard too, is Charlize was coming along from the last one, and it was not any secret during Fate of the Furious that he and The Rock did not get along. I mean, you could look at it as publicity, but right before that movie opened, The Rock was posting about having to work with candy asses who don't carry their load. Right. And in case that was too subtle, he then came out and said, yes, I'm talking about Vin. And, you know, beefs can be good for an action series. Like, I do think that would make you want to see them pair off. We would want to see a spinoff, Vin Diesel specifically against The Rock. If they have this offset beef, that could be fun to see if it translates on screen. That I enjoyed every Planet Hollywood 
Hollywood premiere because Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger had to stand next to each other and grin like they were good friends. I like The Rock. I think he has good charisma, Dwayne Johnson. I think he's good in a film. Jason Statham, I always have loved him in the action I've seen him in, even if the movies themselves haven't been very good. But are you attached to Hobbs and Shaw? Because I am not. This does not have to be Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. You just put Statham and The Rock together in a movie you'd have my interest. Yeah, call it Central Intelligence. Call it Ride Along, <laughs> Ride Along 2. Any of those other team-up movies that aren't very good. Can you think of one without Kevin Hart there? <laughs> well, we're going to be talking about him. Spoiler, I guess. <laughs> Here's the thing. The Rock is so weird because he has so much charisma, but whenever he's like the sole star of a film, Skyscraper Rampage, they're not very good. Like, I watched that Jumanji remake. It's not the greatest thing ever, but it was entertaining. But he had Jack Black. He had Kevin Hart. He had other people to work off of. And I don't know what it is with him, why he can't hold the movie by himself. But I'm excited to see him teaming up with someone that I like because I just think that brings something out in Dwayne Johnson. I remember almost nothing about any Fast and Furious movie. I mean, we covered them all. I know I saw them, but I really couldn't tell you details. I remember The Rock blew in right around part five, and he was sort of part of the gust of wind that made it feel like an entirely new series. And then Statham was teased as a villain. Luke Evans was his brother and got killed, and he was teased as a stinger of like, well, I'm going to go get my vengeance. I will never forgive him for killing Han. Yeah, they retconned him into Tokyo Drift. Yes, he was the one who killed Han at the end of part six. Which is when part three takes place, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. You guys remember things that my brain doesn't want to. No, no, no. I watched a YouTube video covering the chronology just to remind myself. And okay. I watch the movie sometimes just for fun. Okay. But yeah. Han was one of my favorite characters in three, four, five, six. I loved Han. Yes. And... We knew Han died in three, so how was he in four, five, and six? Well, that was the Saw-like time jump where we find out Jason Statham orchestrated the wreck that killed Han, and this was going to be the start of his revenge for his brother. And how can you forgive ever? How can you turn Jason Statham into a hero? To me, that's the same as if episode nine tells me Adam Driver can be redeemed after he impales a helpless Han. Well, I mean, Vin Diesel was the bad guy in the first movie. It's very easy. This series is very good at saying, hey, let's throw out the way we felt about the characters if they came off well on screen. Vin Diesel was an anti-hero. He was the Patrick Swayze to Paul Walker's Keanu Reeves in Fast and Furious. He didn't kill any beloved characters. He was all about family. He was stealing. You could come back from theft. You can redeem theft. But killing a member of said family is a problem for me. So my mind is correct. At some point around part eight, suddenly Jason Statham is a good guy. And he and The Rock were kind of palling around. They were fighting each other, but they were also breaking into something as well, right? They were forced to team together because Mr. Nobody brought them all together. And yeah, Statham and The Rock, brutal enemies. I mean, one was a rogue MI6 agent, a terrorist, a murderer. The other, DSS agent, practically has an American flag tattooed on his face. <laughs> they were not going to get along, but they were forced to work together. Yeah, they've never gotten along. I think it was in Fate of the Furious. They have that whole fight in the jail cell where Mr. Nobody's breaking them out. They've never been buds, even when they've worked together. 
And yet, Vin Diesel has been a producer of many of these Fast and the Furious movies. I noticed there are 12 names listed in the credits for producing this film, and Vin is not one of them. He did not want this movie to happen, and he is not going to even take a paycheck to help The Rock and Jason expand this universe. Is that a mistake? I mean, it seems like it should because this thing is doing well. You're saying it was Vin's choice. Maybe The Rock said, I will not do the film if Vin's getting a penny, that candy ass. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it this way. I took my wife to this. She did not want to go because I thought they really downplayed it in, in the few trailers I saw, the Fast and the Furious aspect. But she's like, oh, this is that car racing franchise. I don't want to see car racing. I'm like, I think it's going to be a little bit different. But she loved this film. And so she's like, oh, I want to watch the good ones that have Hobbs and Shaw in it. And so we're watching, I showing her some clips on YouTube and every time Vin Diesel showed up, she's like, man, what a black hole of charisma he is. She's like, I don't know if I actually want to watch those films now because he just seems like such a downer. And I, I can't disagree with that. He does not have a whole lot of personality. Yeah, I mean, you got to worry about that. If you're the old star and somebody new is coming in, you do. You have to worry about losing your luster. And Vin doesn't have many other franchises. Still, that's usually what happens. After your music pop career ends, you produce and write songs for other people. You maintain that money by being a producer. The big story that came out right before this, you know, opening weekend for Hobbs and Shaw, the story that went viral was an inside look into the contracts of Jason Statham and Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson. We talked about it in Lethal Weapon 4, where Jet Li probably had a writer in his contract that he could not be beaten up by Mel Gibson because it would hurt his credibility mm -hmm. in future martial arts films if people saw him being a bitch. And I mean, it was referenced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when Al Pacino is telling DiCaprio, how many times are you going to let audiences see you get beat up before you're not able to be a hero anymore? In these contracts for these action stars are the number of times they will be hit, the amount of abuse they will take, the fact that they can never lose a fight, there has to be something to cause a stalemate, they have to give as good as they get. Vin Diesel's sister is on set and she will interrupt if at any point Vin Diesel looks like a bitch in a fight. <laughs> I mean, these guys are all alpha males looking to protect their appearance. Wait a minute. But if your sister is defending you in a fight, you've lost that credibility war. <laughs> but that's off screen. Right. We're not supposed to know about these things. That's why they're in the contracts and not on the screen. And I get it, particularly in the action genre where you're trying to appeal to a young male audience. They want to see guys that kick ass. It doesn't matter how charming or good an actor you are. If you're not up there winning the fight, yeah, you probably will lose the audience. I do think it matters how good an actor you are, because if any of these people were great actors, then they'd be able to be a John McClane. You know, they'd be able to take abuse and still get the people on their side. The fact is, this is what these three actors have, is action movie franchises. None of them are going to stretch and try to do Hamlet. God, I hope. Well, they all have. I mean, to be fair, they've all done dramas. I've seen them all in roles where they did not play action guy. This is all they have to go on. Whereas if you bring in an Ethan Hawke or somebody else, they can do action films, but... It's not their bread and butter. They can also act, and so they will lose fights if they have to. And in this case, I was surprised. I mean, Idris Elba is also a big star these days, and he took the role of the bad guy. The bad guy has to finally lose a fight. He's also wearing the digital fur and cat, so his stock has gone down, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's a big star. He's in a lot of things. They got the guy that would agree to be beat up by them. <laughs>
I saw this Sunday afternoon matinee. I was shocked at the audience. I went in expecting a Fast and Furious audience. I got a slow and delirious audience. I don't know if I got caught up in the nursing home field trip, but I swear to God, the average age of my audience was much, much higher than it was for even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, Arnie. <laughs> Mainly because of the octogenarians there. I saw it in one of the smaller theaters. I saw it in a recliner theater. There wasn't that much audience at all, but it ranged. I would say there were people with small children. I sat next to a family where it was teenage girls. Yeah, I went opening night to go see this with my wife and I've talked about previously, I think it was either with Fate or with Furious 7, you know, I felt like the old man in the crowd is all like 20-year-olds. This one, I noticed families there and again, maybe that's because of Dwayne Johnson's presence and WWE and wrestling and all that, I'm not sure, but it did seem like a pretty diverse crowd, about half full. I was just shocked that two 80-year-old ladies would go to see this movie and yet, like during the trailers, they saw 47 meters down on cage and they're like, nope, I don't want to see that violence. <laughs> you could label this an expendables kind of thing. All these guys are over 50. They are all retirement age. So while we may want to see ourselves and them as still having vitality, and they do, they look quite fit. They are old enough to have been around long enough to acquire older fans. Dwayne Johnson, 47, just to defend people my age range. Okay, well, then he's the youngster. It's not far away from 50, I mean. <laughs> I have trouble buying Jason Statham, 50-something Jason Statham, is the same age as Vanessa Kirby. <laughs> yeah, oh, I was making jokes about that during the film. Like, yeah, it's going to flash back and show him his kids where they're like two years apart. I'm like, I bet you they're at least 20 years. And yep, yeah, they're about 20 years apart. <laughs> Gotta love Hollywood. Well, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We'll find out all about Hobbs and Shaw. Evil terrorist organization Eaton is threatening the globe. Their cybernetically enhanced lead agent Brixton Lore, played by Idris Elba, is tasked with stealing the snowflake virus that will cause the extinction of most humans on Earth. Eaton believes this is the only way to save the planet. But Brixton is stymied when a heroic MI6 agent injects herself with the virus capsules instead of letting the terrorists get the virus. That MI6 agent is Hattie Shaw, played by Vanessa Kirby. Eaton frames Shaw, so MI6 thinks she stole the virus and is a terrorist. More, the capsules in her blood will dissolve in 48 hours, releasing the virus, which will go airborne and kill most life on Earth. To try and stop mass extinction, the CIA recruits two unconventional people to try and stop this. Lucas Hobbs, a DSS agent, played by Dwayne Johnson, and Hattie's brother Deckard Shaw, a rogue MI6 agent and terrorist himself, played by Jason Statham. Hobbs and Shaw are mortal enemies ever since Shaw created an explosion that threw Hobbs out of a window back in Fast and Furious 7, so the two don't get along very well and have more conflict with each other than they do with the terrorists. But they both have a common goal of wanting to save the Earth and save Hattie, to whom Hobbs is becoming attracted. To save Hattie, they need to get a virus extraction machine from a research lab in the Ukraine. The trouble is, the three are now all wanted fugitives, as Brixton and Eaton's media control have framed all three of them in the media for massive terrorist plots. Using forged identities, they go and retrieve the machine, but in a fight with Brixton, the machine is damaged. With little time left, Hobbs goes to the one place he doesn't want to go. Samoa, where his family is from. He is estranged from his family as they were criminals, and to save his siblings' lives, he turned his father, the lead criminal, into the authorities and left the island in shame. But his family welcomed him back after an apology, and his mechanic brother is able to repair the machine and extract the virus. But the extraction takes 30 minutes, during which Brixton stages an all-out assault on the Hobbs compound. 
The Hobbs family have no guns anymore, so they use the weapons of the ancient Samoans to fight off Brixton's crew. But they level the playing field by having Hattie hack their systems and take their technologically advanced guns offline. A major battle ensues with Brixton trying to get the virus, involving a helicopter, a train of cars, and a bunch of improbable physics. And in the end, as we knew it would, it comes down to hand-to-hand -hand combat between Hobbs and Shaw versus Brixton. Hobbs and Shaw finally realize the only way to beat him is to work together and coordinate their attacks against Black Superman, and when Brixton is defeated, the shadowy leader of Eaton deactivates Brixton's cybernetics, killing him. But Eaton's commander threatens Hobbs and Shaw that they are on his radar. As Hobbs introduces his family to his nine-year-old daughter, and the Shaw siblings go and visit their mother in prison, and credits roll. Yes, I, I just had to laugh, though, that all the presents at the beginning of this film. I was waiting to see, is this really going to say on the screen, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw? Yeah, yeah, it is. And how close is it in spirit of that? I think there is a lot of car culture here. I think there is a lot of family here. Those seem to be the <laughs> tropes that define the series of all previous eight movies. And so that is what they're going to run with. I more or less agree, except if I this didn't say Fast and Furious Presents, I don't know if I would have assumed if I didn't know who Hobbs and Shaw were, assumed it was from that franchise because, yeah, there's cars here, but street racing. It's been funny how they have had to fit street racing into the last few of those Fast and Furious films because they have become spy films, but I was waiting for that street racing scene. We'll get stunt work, we'll get car chases, but no street races. I agree. This is taking the Fast and the Furious franchise that one extra step away from being the series it was. I think we're still going to have to have street race culture in every Fast and Furious film, whereas this, this is an action franchise, period. It's an odd couple, buddy cop, explosive action film that, to me, it brings in characters from the Fast and the Furious, it brings in crazy stunt work like the Fast and the Furious had, but doesn't seem to have the cars and the road chasing. It has a little bit of that, but every action movie has a little of that. To me, this did not feel in the vein of Fast and Furious. To each their own, I see very little difference. The street racing thing is usually only one scene anyway in a Fast and Furious movie. Well, it's become only one scene now. You go back to those early ones, a lot of street racing. Sure. Yeah, they've been moving in this direction for some time. I don't see this movie as a huge step away, particularly when we have this man in black Kevlar riding a motorcycle that doesn't even need him to work, riding in to grab this virus, which apparently also an MI6 team is coming. We don't know who actually has the snowflake virus. It's just some sap sitting around in an armored truck in a London underground garage. But MI6 and this motorcycle man are going to vie for it. The fact that MI6 is showing up, I feel like these are some other kind of crooks that have gotten a hold of the virus. It's strange to me that we're going to have another virus plot. With Vanessa Kirby after Mission Impossible? Yes, I was very much thinking Mission Impossible, several Mission Impossibles, but hey, it's a MacGuffin, it's a good enough MacGuffin, and yeah, we're going to get to see Idris Elba make his mark here with his motorcycle that looks borrowed from the Transformers franchise. I mean, that thing can deconstruct and... I was waiting for it to transform. Come back together again, and... The sound effects, for sure. The sound design is... Yeah, I mean, it's clearly wanting to be that cool. And we'll see later, it rides on the sides of walls and the top of their cars. It's a super bike. It's got some hydraulics. When he goes under a semi-truck, we'll see it kind of flatten out. It's got some mechanics there. It shears some of that all spark. Right. <laughs> 
And so he kills everyone on this team except the one woman we've been asked to pay attention to. We, we take a note that there's one woman who is, I guess, a hacker because she is the one that is fiddling around on the laptop when Brixton rides in, and she will be the only one to get away. She injects herself with the virus. Did she know at that time that it was in capsules that wouldn't just kill her instantly and send it out. It seems like a huge leap of faith to think to stop this guy from getting the virus. The best thing to do is to infect myself with a plague, which if she was self-sacrificing and thought it would only kill her, that's one thing. But we're told this virus will go airborne once a person is infected. They'll tell us that later, but that was my assumption that she was infecting herself and they'd have 48 hours to get the antidote to cure her. And yeah, it's this weird, it's in capsules and they're slowly going to dissolve and eventually she'll infect everyone. They're actually going to quickly dissolve because they do nothing for 48 hours and then all of a sudden everyone on the planet <laughs> is dead. It's a, a strange system, but they do things because it will make the most exciting. Yes, she should have just had pockets. Put the vial in your pocket <laughs> and run away and then you don't have to be walking contagion, but that wouldn't be nearly as exciting, right? And this gives them a reason to have Brixton not just shoot her. They need her alive because they need to extract it. So now there's a reason for her to not just end up dead at this opening scene. I gotta give a lot of credit in this movie to Vanessa Kirby, though, because in the modern day and age, you have to have strong women characters in your action films as well as strong men. Vanessa Kirby carries the three-part role of damsel in distress. She's basically doing the Tandy Newton role from Mission Impossible 2 of the person infected with the virus, your typhoid Mary, and she's the MacGuffin, and she's a kick-ass woman in her own right, and she's a love interest. I mean, wow, they put a lot on her shoulders here. Don't you call that a Mary Sue, usually? It's only a Mary Sue if it's not justified. She's an MI6 agent. A Mary Sue is someone who has power and can do everything that is not justified. This, she can't do everything. She's just given a lot in the plot to do. Stuart, if you're saying she's a Mary Sue because she's an indestructible fighter, well, that applies to everyone in this film. I would say everyone's a Mary Sue. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. And the two biggest Mary Sues are who we meet next. Shown in parallel, a split screen, because they don't want you to miss how much these two people that hate each other are identical. Aren't they just an odd couple? Yeah, they're just gonna really put a fine point on it. What I didn't understand, they weren't looking for information after this Virus because we see this heist and then they both get calls from people. And so I just assumed, oh, here they are going, trying to track down where this virus has gone by going after tattoo artists and whoever their criminal contacts are. But that's not the case, I think. I think this scene could actually have come before the London attack and probably did. In one edit, they were like, they're on a mission to find this armored truck. And because they didn't want to put everyone in the same scene, they didn't want to have to deal with Brixton fighting them this early on. They wanted to tease the identity of of Hattie, so they just make it seem like they're getting a call after the fact. And our director, who we've discussed, I think, every film he's done, David Leach, yes. <laughs> does he expect audiences to think that in London and in Los Angeles, people are waking up and having sunrise at the same time, or are we seeing time-shifted split screen here? 
who's to say the uh, education level of the person writing this? But yes, I would <laughs> hope that they would know that London is nowhere near LA and that it would be happening at different hours of the day. But the point is that, yes, they both get up and make eggs and one wears a Motley Crue t-shirt, one wears nice linen, black pajamas, but different styles of car, different shades of Superman. They will learn almost nothing when they go off and beat up these people. The Rock is going to go to some karaoke night and beat up a guy in a tattoo chair. I don't think he learns a thing out of that. So they are looking for the virus at this point because nothing is solved from this. I just assumed, oh, they were just on some other case and this is just to introduce the characters into the film. That's even more confusing. Yeah, because none of this pays off. Yeah, no, they're not learning anything about the super virus. The point is to establish their brand. The point is to ask the audience, who do you think is cooler? My dad can beat up your dad debate. Let's go. Yeah, but neither one has been contacted and told about Hattie and told about the virus. So while it does seem in the events of this movie, the way it unfolds, you think they're asking where is the virus? Who took the virus? Who are these people? That can't be what they're working on because they're going to find out about it later. No, they are working on that. That is what they're working on. That is exactly... How could that be? Because we're going to get Ryan Reynolds explaining it all. This is the confusion I had during the film. Yeah, it gets explained later. They're looking for the armored truck. They know so little, they don't even know where this is. What they know is that the virus is being auctioned off. They don't know the virus is being auctioned off in a London underground garage. Yeah, okay, so this should have come before the Vanessa Kirby scene. Then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is edited. Lots of choices are made about what will be the most exciting. They set up the mystery of this woman injected with a virus, and now we have see two guys that are going to be pursuing her. And yes, they each have a CIA contact that were both in Deadpool 2. Yes, but one made a much bigger impression in Deadpool 2 than the other. I couldn't believe it. I almost fell out of my seat when Ryan Reynolds walks on. Then, of course, it hit me. Leech. He did Deadpool 2. He called in a favor. He got Ryan Reynolds on set for probably two days because he's on literally two different sets and that is all. And I love that they put the rock tattoo on him the way he's he's trying to. (laughs) He got the same tribal tattoo as the rock. Here's the thing. My wife turns to me. She loves Deadpool. Like, she does not like Marvel movies, but she loves Deadpool. And she turns to me. She's like, why did you not tell me he was in this film? And I looked it up. He's uncredited. This was a secret cameo, I guess, by him. Or It's more than a cameo, but I guess they wanted to keep this a secret. Yeah, it's just like Kevin Hart. They just a way of punctuating the moment and making it more exciting. It's a data dump. Who wants to sit here and learn about a snowflake virus? Nobody. But you bring in Ryan Reynolds, and he can riff on Game of Thrones, and suddenly you have have the audience in your palm presumably i mean maybe not all of the audience are you speaking know. about yourself yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry but i was hoping he would be a bigger part of this film i actually wondered if he is the mysterious bad guy you know the big bad talks through a voice modulator that goes up and down and all of this every once in a while it gets in that middle and i'm like am i hearing ryan reynolds or am i hearing kurt russell one of those two i wondered i had that same experience i thought that was going to be the big reveal at the end that lock ryan reynolds character was the head of this organization. I have another theory now, and no, it's not Kurt Russell. It's even crazier. I'll talk about it later in this podcast, but yeah. <laughs> it's Vin Diesel trying to kill The Rock so he doesn't steal the franchise? Not Vin <laughs> Diesel, but it is, yeah, another Fast and Furious character. I think it, if they got the balls, they could do something real crazy. Han is alive. Nope, not Han. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> 
But Stuart, I, I agree. If you don't like Ryan Reynolds, then you're probably rolling your eyes here. I like him when he's just kind of riffing. And look, I'm not going to take this movie very seriously, so I'm laughing along with it. I'm kind of confused about that opening montage with The Rock and with Jason Statham's characters doing their thing. Like, where does that fall in this timeline? But I don't think you're supposed to get caught up on that kind of stuff with this movie. Laugh and have fun with the action scenes. And that's what I'm doing when Ryan Reynolds shows up. Yeah, obviously. I mean, this is not to be taken with any amount of seriousness, which, of course, is a huge problem for me because I don't want to watch an action movie that's all about hyperbole and this kind of comedy, like gritting my teeth, prepared for the worst as we dive into this. And yes, everyone around me is laughing. And it is glossing over very easily the fact that the world is in danger. Who are we going to call on? A DSS agent. I don't work for the CIA. Oh, your boss has loaned you out. That's all we're going to get to explain why all of a sudden Hobbs is a globetrotting, save-the-world guy. I mean, I don't know why you'd call him. I mean, that's what this whole franchise is based on. Let's get some street racers to save the world for eight films. No, it's only been like two films of that. Uh, okay. <laughs> mm, it feels, he says I've saved the world four times, and I feel like that's how many films it's been since they've gone this ridiculous. He's using a lot of hyperbole. He did not save the world when he stopped a bank heist in Rio, and he didn't even successfully stop it. You get the point. That is what this franchise has become. Yes. It's about saving the world. It's James Bond at this point. It's really James Bond. I mean, Eaton, they're Spectre, right? I mean, this is how I'm feeling. Or Smursh. We won't know. They're never going to tell us who they are. I mean, very MI6 versus Smursh. Yeah, but I like spy movies and I don't like this. So the difference is <laughs> the difference is is that we're not really to treat it very seriously. It's a spy movie only in the need to make it a series of gags with stunts. That is what this is. This is a gag movie with a lot of action. Yeah, like I was trying to figure out why are you calling this the snowflake virus? Because it just gets passed around like the flu. Did a boomer write this? And he just he hates those snowflake millennials. I wondered if there was some Twitter reason like this will kill all the snowflakes. Yeah, I, I gotta also say, can we move on from uh, the only way to save the world is killing most people? I got it. We saw that in Kingsman. We saw that in with Thanos. This seems like a tired plot. I do agree. I don't think Hollywood is going to move on from saying that the environment is going to hell and we have to stop it. But having villains saying the only way to fix it is to destroy half or more than half of humanity. I mean, that is the danger of the snowflake virus. That is, yeah, we have Eaton here and it's like, we'll destroy most of humanity and those who survive, they'll be stronger and that's who we'll, we'll rebuild. Yeah, but they're rebuilding already. I mean, Idris Elba, we see at the beginning, his character, Brixton, we knew this from the trailers going in, that we were going more into science fiction fantasy land than the Fast and Furious films had ever gone, and they've gone pretty deep with things like tanks and... Oh yeah, we got a Terminator in this film, basically. Yeah, he called himself Black Superman in the trailers. This guy has a metal spine, he is cybernetically enhanced. We find out very quickly at the beginning when he's fighting MI6, he has Terminator vision where he's able to assess all threats and come up with the probability of success in fighting them. If Eaton can do this, I feel like I would join up. <laughs> And I do think that Eaton is being powered by someone that's no longer human. I mean, we've been guessing about what the voice is, and I agree. I think Ryan Reynolds did that voice, but I don't think it's meant to be his character, Locke. 
I believe it's someone that doesn't need a body anymore. If this is a facility that believes that mankind will be saved through cybernetics, the ultimate goal is to upload your consciousness into the cloud, right? We will see a hallway blink when it talks. Okay, I'll just say my theory now then. Here is my crazy theory. Put a dollar on it in Vegas, and if it pays out, you'll make millions. It's that far-fetched. I think the head of Eaton here, this voice, this disembodied voice, is Brian. Brian's going to come back. It won't be Paul Walker. They'll tell us he got in some crazy accident. They had to do some plastic surgery. So they'll be able to get a different actor. I'm going with Brian. Like, that is the craziest idea I had during this film. And I'm sticking with it. The end end credit scene makes me think that it was not Ryan Reynolds. And we will get there. But I don't think it's a disembodied or reincarnated Paul Walker. A, they would never disrespect Paul Walker. They went out of their way to be respectful to him with Furious 7. They're not going to bring him back and desecrate his memory or give Jordana Brewster a reason to have a job. And (laughs) I don't think it's a disembodied voice because it's a masked voice. If it was just a disembodied voice, we would have a voice actor not sounding all over the map. It's a scrambled voice to hide their identity. Maybe this is one of those cases where they don't know who it is yet. Maybe this is just, we're going to foreshadow a big bad and we'll figure it out next time. Yeah, because we'll learn nothing about Eaton in this. This is the first time they've been mentioned, right? Like this super agency that's making Terminators, like they've just popped up in this franchise. This is the first time, right? And I don't think that they're going to be in Fast and Furious 9 and 10. I think this is something custom made for these guys to fight while Toretto and his family are doing whatever they're doing. They've got their own family problems. It's going to be underlined. One of the ways that Hobbs and Shaw are just alike is that they both have families that are estranged. Hobbs has this little nine-year-old daughter who is doing so well on her homework, but she can't complete her social studies family tree because she doesn't know where she comes from. And that's the way that her dad likes it. He doesn't want to talk about his past, even when she produces a picture of him as a child with his brother. Yeah, it's so sad. Like, I don't even think she has her mom in that family tree. It's just her and her dad. Like, he never told her her mom was? There is the branch of the tree that goes to a mother and just has a question mark. I'm like, that is harsh. They obviously are playing with time a little bit because this is not the same actress who played his daughter in part seven. Obviously, they're wanting to keep this child very young versus she'd be a teenager now. Meanwhile, Shaw is, instead of pumping iron, he goes and gets beer from a tap. He is a bartender or a barkeep. And he's got a strange family as well. We've already met his mother. Helen Mirren is locked up and he goes to visit her. And she mentions that he is never hanging out with his sister and that they were so close in childhood running scams based on rock legends, Keith Moons and Mick Jaggers. Rule of threes. I was expecting one more. They'd come up with a new one by the end of this. That let me down there. But was this supposed to be a secret that Vanessa Kirby's character was his sister? Because again, I didn't watch a whole lot of interviews in that. I saw a couple of trailers and I felt like that was told in the trailers, but they make it play like a secret here. Everything I knew about this movie told me the reason criminal Shaw is invested in this is because it's his sister. It's family. He says that. He says he doesn't give a toss. Agent Loeb or Peter from Deadpool 2 pulls out the picture of the person they're tracking. Instantly, he's on board. Okay, I'll do it. And the CIA wants to go to this fugitive terrorist. I mean, I know he helped out with Fate of the Furious, but still, you know what? You got to drink the Kool-Aid on this one, right? You got to give it its premise of these are the two guys and not question it too much. 
I'll give it its premise, I guess, but it doesn't even try is, my, I guess, my problem. It doesn't try to make the implausible sound plausible. It's just like, no, these are the men and you're going to see it. No, it's trying to sleep with the implausible. It's taking it home to bed. Like, it doesn't not want to be implausible. It wants to get it on with being the most absurd thing it could possibly be. That's why I find uh, having a hard time, one, trying to, like, let's do the now playing thing and put on our goggles and delve deep. It's a silly action film that wants to be a silly action film. Just let it be. Yeah, well, we can talk about whether we want something to be this ridiculous. That's a fair thing to ask. But no, to try and find plausibility in this movie, this movie has told you you're a fool if you're going to try to do that. And I went in with an eyebrow cocked, kind of like The Rock does, because I was worried about plausibility in this film when the trailer shows The Rock pulling down a helicopter with one arm. <laughs> I mean, Steve Rogers did that, I think, but I guess he had super soldier serum. Yeah, he's not human. I don't know. You show Idris Elba saying, I'm black Superman. I'm like, okay, I know what film this is. I'm smiling. I'm all in. Here's the thing. I know what film I'm in. I'm not smiling. Because you don't want to go to this kind of film. That's exactly right. I tried to think about genres that are like this that I do like. And the best I could come up with is screwball comedy. Movies from the 30s and 40s where the romantic leads are bickering the whole time until they beat themselves into loving each other. All right, how's the wit? How's the dialogue? Once these two get together and say no fucking way and start sounding off against each other, part of the problem I'm having is it's mostly genitalia related dick measuring kinds of comments. And that to me is just, it's not that funny or witty. A wanker with a nasally Harry Potter voice God vomiting in my eye. This movie feels like it was written entirely by one-liners. And this little competition over who can insult the other one more. You know what's making it work? Not the words. Right. The delivery is making it work, though, because these two guys both are stars in their own right with screen presence that when you bring them together, works pretty well. You know, watching each respond to the other's insults is funnier than the insult itself. Yeah, they have charisma. If this was Vin Diesel delivering these lines, I'd be rolling my eyes. It's the fact they got actors that could pull off this kind of stupid, regressed humor. I'm willing to go along with it. Yeah, for a while, I agree with you. What this movie has going for it are its three male leads. They're all exceptionally charming in their own distinctive way, and you can have fun thinking about them saying very stupid things to one another for a while. This movie is two hours and 20 minutes long. I'll agree, the movie is too long for its premise. I definitely felt that. Yeah. Occasionally there is some wit. I thought I caught a Trump joke when they're walking out of the glass doors and the password is small hands. I thought they were like <laughs> making a joke about how much England hates Trump. You know, there were so many dick-sized jokes that I didn't think about Trump. I just thought it was specifically a tiny dick comment. Yeah, and that, I just don't think that stuff is that uproarious. That kind of playground regressed stuff is like, I have very low tolerance for a lot of that. I don't want to spend time with too many characters that think that's the only way to tell a joke. And I'm iffy on it. You know, I'll take a little of it. Yeah. The more clever it is, the better it is. When later in the movie, Shaw gives Hobbes a fake identity and it's Mr. Oxmall. I'm like, okay, everybody's going with it. And then the gate agent's like, you're Mike Cosmo. 
<laughs> that had me laughing. Yeah, every once in a while, because I agree with you, Stuart, it gets old after a while, and I think that's the difference in opinion between me and my wife, who love this film, is like, it was funny the entire time for me. It gets old after <laughs> the first 40 minutes or whatever. But yeah, every once in a while, Arnie, you're right. Like, Mike Coxmall, okay, they caught me off guard because I saw that name, Oxmall. I'm like, that's really weird. What's going on with that? And then, all right, they got a joke. And the thing is, because he tosses him some clothes and says, I think this will fit you. And then I see the name Oxmall. I'm thinking, is he going to be in a, a turban? And a, is he going to be dressed like an Egyptian? I thought it was going to be the punchline is the outfit not the first name. So yeah, that one I liked, but by and large, these two going at it, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to enjoy the movie, period, because this is the movie. Outside of the plot, if you ask me for a summary, it's Jason Statham and The Rock try to one-up each other through one-liners and fast fists through an entire movie, and it's a action movie, Laurel and Hardy, where one is big and, you know, like a Mack truck, and the other is small and lithe. And that's why you really want to be cautious about spinning off beloved characters for their own movie. Stifler from American Pie works. Stifler, given an entirely different movie where he gets to be in every scene, would be overkill. Yeah, side characters are just that. I certainly don't want the next thing to be Fast and Furious presents Tyrese and Ludacris. But there is a third person here. There is, God help us, a romantic storyline that they're going to spritz on with a mister between Hobbs and Hattie, who about 30 minutes in, he's tracked her down. Hobbs is actually the one to find her while Shaw is going through her apartment and fighting some nameless goons. And I think they get away with that. You know, a big guy beating up on a woman might play bad. I actually think the fight is clever. She gets him in her legs many a time, and it looks like a fair fight. I loved the moment, though, where she has her legs around his neck, and I'm like, because that was the story that went viral, I have in my head, is The Rock really going to allow in his contract that he gets knocked out by a small woman? No, he is going to lift her up like we are in a comic book movie. Just stand up and hold her above his head like he is the Hulk. He'll even be referred to in this as She-Hulk. What does she do to add a love triangle or extra dimension? I don't know. I don't really get the sense there's this ugly history between her and Deckard. It'll get said later on that she didn't forgive him for his criminal activities. And a lot of people will talk a lot of things about how guilty he is. And I think we're meant to think that he isn't the bad guy that she held him accountable for being. Yes, it's much like she is framed for betraying MI6 here. He was framed for betraying MI6 by Brixton back in the day because Brixton was recruited by Eaton. And Brixton tried to recruit Shaw and Shaw ended up killing Brixton and Eaton brought Brixton back to life. So we're supposed to think it was all a big misunderstanding and he ended up becoming a criminal because he was on the run from MI6 for a crime he didn't commit. You still killed Han, mother. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet the way it plays between Deckard and Hattie isn't so much that there's this weird, convoluted, you know, he ran from MI6. It seems like the main issue is Deckard doesn't want Hobbs to bang her. Like, that's what it comes down to. He's the protective brother or overprotective brother. And, you know, again, we'll get that line. It's kind of funny. If she wants to climb this big, brown, beautiful mountain, I'm going <laughs> to let her, you know. But that's what it really seems to come down to is don't bang my sister. But does he want to? I mean, the, the, where the movie totally fails, and they don't spend many scenes trying to develop it, is the idea that he's crushing on her. Like, we get him focused chatting with his daughter and she's saying go for it but by and large I don't get a whole lot of attraction between the two 
I got much more out of Hobbs and the tattoo assistant in the early scene of the film than I ever get out of him and Hattie in the rest of this film. Yeah. It's something they could have worked on. It would have been something to help with the one noted quality of the humor. If she had been able to be her own force and have her own effect on Hobbs, I think I would have enjoyed all of their performances more. If she were Charlie's Theron, she would. Because she would also have it in the contract that she has to kick as much ass and she has to do this and that and get more screen time. The fact is, she is a far less important character than our two title characters. And so she's going to get less to do. They do keep her active. They keep her capable. She's able to kick ass as needed. She's able to hack. She's able to survive this virus for a while, but... And you still don't think she's a Mary Sue? I think the computer stuff in this is really fucking stupid, okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, good. Thank you. That she's a hacker is ridiculous. That there is a virus extraction machine. That somebody built a machine just to extract this virus. I mean, this is like the shark repellent on Batman, okay? That mm-hmm. is the level of stupid of the computers in this goddamn movie. I'm pissed at it. I'm pissed that there are gloves that activate guns. I mean, I know that's real stuff, but that you can then hack it over like a cell network? No. Every piece of technology in this movie is Batman 66 level stupid. And it should be said of the three of us, you don't like Batman 66 the most. Correct. I mean, it's weird that you're getting this upset over this. This is a franchise where Ludacris was the master hacker. (laughs) So I, I, again, I'm meeting this film on its level. I don't have so much of a problem of her being a hacker. They needed to find ways to make her useful, but go back and see what Ludacris was doing. It's just a silly. I, I agree with Jacob on that. It can be frustrating that this movie doesn't care, but it hasn't ever cared. Exactly. And so I'm just mad that they're on part nine is really the fact of the matter. All right. Here's another thing to ask. If we're concerned that the comedy is the only reason why anyone would recommend this movie. It is an action film. Do we think when, let's say, Brixton is blowing in here at the MI6 building and doing this whole repelling kidnapping plot and it proceeds to the street where we get some of that car stuff we know they're good at, is it comparable to the other action movies of today? Of today? Yeah, probably. Is it comparable to MI Fallout? Hell no. Like, that, that is one of the top action films of the last decade. Or Mad Max Fury Road. I, I think that is something where I will express disappointment with this film. And I'm sure there's going to be some listener, no, this was really all practical. It just doesn't feel practical to me, though. It's one thing that, yeah, maybe it's practical. And then they did some CGI overlay to, you know, remove wires or to make it look adrenalized. But it just, you know, we'll see Brixton. He'll fly through a double-decker bus. I'm like, okay, that looks like it was an actual stuntman, but so many of the stunts in this don't feel like they're real. And maybe they are, but they don't feel it. And that's a disappointment. For David Leach, former stuntman, goes on to John Wick and Atomic Blonde. This has the worst stunts I've ever seen him do. Anyone who says this is all practical is lying because some of the compositing in here is piss poor. There we go. And that's I, whatever it is, whatever people did, they did it on a blue screen and a green screen. And you can tell they weren't there. Yeah. Especially when they're on the back of the truck stuff. Yes. Mid film. Maybe they threw the punches. Maybe they did the flips. But I expected more from David Leach. Late in the film, very late in the film, like during the climax, I think he pulls it out and does some good stuff. But compare this to Atomic Blonde. Again, Charlie's there on there. It's night and day. Atomic Blonde captivates me with its stunts that don't feel choreographed. 
here, everything just feels rote. And I think it's because they're not pushing these two stars in new directions. The Rock has, in every movie, lifted people up and punched them hard and knocked them out. And Jason Statham is some kind of martial arts ninja without a specified brand of martial arts, but he's able to punch as hard with his elbow as The Rock can with his fist. But No, a lot of these action scenes, I mean, running down the building looked good. I liked it. Looked better in (laughs) A-Team. Much better. And I just, again, comes the plausibility when The Rock decides he's going to fling himself off the rope and land on a guy. But when he's sliding down that rope with no gloves, your hands are gone. There's no more flesh. There's no more bone. You have sanded your hands down. But he's Rock. He's not flesh. He's The Rock. But the fact that he's jumping down, it reminded me of a video game in a bad way. Like, if I was playing this level on Arkham Knight, having to jump from guy to guy, it would be cool. But here, it undercut the good visuals because the action was dumb. All right, I'm glad we're all in agreement because I didn't think this stuff, I didn't see Atomic Blonde, I didn't see John Wick. A lot of the stuff that you guys are going to be comparing it to, I didn't. But yeah, I know the Mission Impossible movies. By comparison, these things look like they're hyper-realistic. Because we can see the lines around the actors, we know that they're not really there and doing it. It just makes it feel more over the top, and thus it might play to the comedy more. We are feeling, yeah, when Batman and Robin climb up a wire on a building. <laughs> I mean, this feels more like a Marvel film. Because those Marvel films, I don't think they're as focused on like, let's do real stunts. Like, if you're an action film, you want to emphasize the stunts and putting people's lives in danger, getting Tom Cruise into a helicopter to fly in real life, and, you know, talking about John Wick and Atomic Blonde and all those. Like, those are the best of the genre. This... It feels like what's on par for probably most action films. I think Marvel is actually better. If you look at some of the stunt work, it may not be plausible, but you look at ripping a motorcycle out from under a guy in Civil War or the hand-to-hand combat scenes that the Russos did in Winter Soldier. To me, when this tried to go to that level, for some reason it didn't work. And I'm blaming the stars, actually. I'm kind of now afraid to see The Rock put on spandex and play Black Adam, because I just don't think that's the kind of action he excels at. Right. Yeah, he's not that kind of athlete. He was a wrestler. Like, he had a whole career where he took fake punches. Well, yes. In my estimation, WWE, WWF never was convincing. So that was, again, part of its fun. As a comedy, you watch that to watch those over-the-top characters. You never were convinced that the fighting was real. And I guess that works for this image here. If you like that stylization of action movie where it never feels like anyone's taking a punch, then it won't bother you. And there are a few good, I mean, you know, when they slide underneath the jackknifing semi or whatever, there's a couple cool stuff done through editing that, yeah, looks as good as anything else I've seen in an action film. And I'm always more impressed by Brixton's motorcycle than I am with Jason Statham's driving skills. The only thing that caught me off guard with Statham is when they're getting his car. Did they reference the Italian job movie he did? Because there was a big chase and a Mini Cooper in that. Yeah. And he's like, I had a job in Italy to do one time. Yeah, that, I thought that was obvious that that was a reference to that. Yeah, they've brought that movie in. Do we need to review it now? Are they <laughs> incorporated no. that into the universe? <laughs> People do love Statham in that film. All I remember is Ed Norton looking like somebody shoved a dildo up his ass. As he usually does. <laughs> Anyway, Brixton's mad. Brixton goes back and we get into act two where we find out Eaton is so powerful that it can actually get all the TV stations to report lies and that they have this unjustified overreach of power in which now everyone on the planet are looking for our heroes. Only half the networks and Brixton's going to say, let's do the rest. 
what I kind of like about Hattie is she doesn't feel safe with him. She's going to walk away. She wants to find the man that invented the snowflake virus. But Shaw already has done that. He posed as the only newspaper stand that carried a Russian newspaper. And because Professor and Draco still likes to get news the old-fashioned way, they were able to find him and get some more information about how he can't help them unless they get this magic extraction machine in the Ukraine. The script does a good juggling act of meeting the contractual demands that each character does equally as much in this solution. Like... Hobbs is the one who tracked this professor who was off the grid. He's like, see, I got photos of this professor, but it's Shaw who's like, and I know that newsstand. You know, <laughs> every single thing is them working together while insulting each other. It's why the end where they're like, we have to work together feels a little false because really they are. But they won't acknowledge it. And that's, of course, the whole point. And again, a lot of romantic comedies are that as well. You guys are in love, but it will take you 90 minutes to figure this out. This is that vibe for a bromance. But, you know, yes, let's point out some ridiculousness. So Eaton has everything about the snowflake virus except the snowflake virus. It still needs to, like, chase this woman around, even though it has the only machine that can extract it and all the work of the scientist who invented it. They could probably make more virus easier. Right. And I don't think they want this particular... If I understand this plot correctly, they didn't want this particular virus. This particular snowflake virus was being sold by nameless goons in the back of a truck. They just wanted the carrier. They liked the way that it disseminated the toxin. And so they have their own virus that they want to put in that capsule to release. They don't want humanity to die because why would they? Like, I don't think cybernetics are going to save Idris Elba. Like, he will die if it melts your inside. Yeah, it's survival of the fittest. It's going to kill most people, but then there's going to be a few left. And I don't know what the plan is from there, except they just want most people to die. I mean, are they going to make everyone Terminators? I didn't get that. I thought that terrorists were competing for something so lethal, and Etion wanted it for purposes that have yet to be revealed, but a future sequel will show. Idris Elba is going to go on a speech about how Earth's population needs to be called, and we're going to release the virus to do it. Yeah. They're going to release their virus. I didn't know there was another virus. I never got that. Many times they say, we want this scientist to retool. They say that numerous times. They are not releasing this virus. Now, why are we debating the fine points of this when it doesn't really matter? I just am trying to understand. All they have to do is sit back and relax, right? If they wanted the virus released, they wouldn't need to be chasing her. True. The one thing that I don't understand is when they get the doctor at the newsstand, the doctor's like, well, the only solution is to take her, kill her, and burn her completely, leave nothing remaining, and it will kill the virus. And then he's like, well, part two is impossible, but let's go to the Ukraine and get the extraction machine. Am I the only one who saw Evil Dead 2 and knows number three? Cut her hand off and just burn that part of her? Well, I think it's in her bloodstream, though. It's, it's not. It's capsules. I... It's little rubber capsules that are going to be pulled out of her. We're going to see it in bad CGI later. Yeah, no, I thought the whole point of the 30-minute time it took for the extractor to work it was like dialysis it had to run through all your blood to make sure it filtered out those capsules they didn't know when it got the capsules i just assumed it was flowing around her bloodstream the whole time this plot is really ill-defined. Yeah, uh, we can agree that the only one that cares about how this vaccination thing works is Jenny McCarthy. Nobody else. <laughs> give one iota about how any of this works. Keep running. Keep it going. Don't look back. 
Are you guys having fun? Are you finding it easy to overlook its lackadaisical, some would even say reckless plotting? Yeah, I recognize as I'm watching, I'm like, this is a dumb plot, ill-defined bad guys with their stupid, I want to take over the world plot. Like, none of that is smart, but I'm meeting this film on its level. I'm enjoying most of the humor. And again, these stunts, they are not Tom Cruise level <laughs> stunts, but they're on par, maybe a little above par. I, I'm enjoying the action. and But mostly it's the chemistry between Hobbs and Shaw that I'm going with, their banter back and forth. For the first half of the movie, I'm along for the ride. And you know I don't like movies where they say, turn off your brain. I refuse to do that. But I was putting this in the category of dumb fun. I'm going to recognize how utterly stupid this movie is, but I'm having fun. But I'll agree with you to preview that I think this runtime is 45 minutes too long. If you recall movies like this in the 80s... Yeah, 90 minutes. They ran 90 to 100 minutes. And this one is bloated beyond belief. Yeah, that's what I would say, is that knowing that this is not for me, I am still trying to evaluate how well it's working for someone that would want a movie like this. And I think that it more or less is delivering the template, the formula for what a buddy cop adventure is. But I am becoming frustrated. I would identify the moment when Kevin Hart shows up as the moment where I feel like, look, we already had a Ryan Reynolds cameo. Do we really need to keep throwing stars from other movies in to try and keep this going? You can bring Kevin Hart in anytime. I love Kevin Hart. I, I will say this, like The Rock, like when I watched that Jumanji movie, I don't think I like Kevin Hart. I've never seen Central Intelligence. Don't see Central Intelligence. It's not good. What should I see that is good? Because I haven't enjoyed Kevin Hart in milliseconds of footage I've seen. I would say Jumanji. Like, again, when you get these people that I don't necessarily like when they're the central focus, when they're just kind of bouncing off of each other with Jack Black and Dwayne Johnson, you're getting smaller doses with them that way. They're not taking up the whole screen. And I could kind of see the appeal. I liked him in the remake of About Last Night. It's not as good a movie as the original, but I liked him in it. I do like him in Ride Along. I think he's pretty funny. And when I see him in movies, you're right, Jacob, it's often in the funny supporting role, but I always do laugh at what he brings. So, I mean, when he showed up here, I rolled my eyes. I'm like, oh, great, Kevin Hart. But it's just enough of them where I'm like, okay, I've laughed at him. I got no ill will towards him after this role. It was just the right amount of heart. Okay, I'm feeling like they're doing this as a way of keeping this alive. Well, let's just keep throwing characters at the screen because we don't have anything of interest anymore. And so, yeah, for half a second, you think he might be a third wheel or a fourth wheel, if you consider Hattie a part of the team for this adventure. But I don't even know what he's saying. He says something about the magic of Echo and Warlocks, uh, which are, I guess, groups that have either been in Fast and Furious or they're teasing for future movies. I don't see him listed in the cast list of Fast and Furious 9. I'm not really sure what they're doing here. I don't understand why an air marshal, who is what he is, he comes in because he hears Hobbs and Shaw are about to get into a fight on an airplane after Hobbs makes some comments about his well-endowed screwing of Shaw's sister. And this air marshal comes back. Now, these are wanted criminals 
who are plastered all over the news, all over the FBI. I'm sure an air marshal would know to look for a seven-foot muscular Samoan accompanied by a bald, lithe British guy. Oh, he knows who they are. I think that he wants to be in on it. Yeah, he's a fanboy. That's why he lets them go and helps them out later. He will later, yeah, help them get fly commercial again to get to Samoa and all of that. He wants to be on their team, and it has something to do with this group, the Warlocks. Well, he was with a team called the Warlocks, so it's saying Kevin Hart knows his stuff. He's basically like a Navy SEAL. But he comes back and he's like, I know what you guys are about. You, you're law enforcement, and you, you're a spy. He doesn't say you're Hobbs and Shaw, the men that are wanted. He says, I know from listening to you and looking at you, I know your types. He does not know that these are wanted terrorists. No, I I took it as he was a fanboy and he's sick of sitting on commercial flights. He's pro-terrorist? No, he's a fanboy that they're, they've they saved the world, that he has some kind of knowledge of what they've done in the Fast and Furious. So this is just the way I'm taking it as I'm watching it, because when he's saying he's warlock or whatever, I don't know what that means, but he's bored of his job where he's stuck sitting in a plane. He wants to be out there having the adventures, and that's why he's helping them out. Yeah, he's breaking the fourth wall. He wants in on this action franchise. Everybody gets to do a Fast and Furious movie, and that's his shtick of, like, I'm small and everyone undervalues me, and I could be a real asset. Which is his shtick in every film. But is Madam M an asset? I mean, like again, let's just throw a hot chick here who beats up on Russian goons at home for fun and just has like a jet sitting in her lawn of her mansion that they can fly to the Ukraine in. This is where I felt in the film like, oh, we could start cutting stuff like none of this needs to be in here. They could just show up to that factory and just have guns from somewhere. I'm not going to question where they got them from, but they feel the need to tell us every little detail. No, but they got to run a Mick Jagger. The problem is in a good heist movie, the intricacies of how they set it up are really clever. It's really impressive when you see an Oceans movie and it goes off because you're like, oh, I didn't see this coming. Here they have some BS about how Madame M is going to sell Hattie to Brixton and that's going to be like Mick Jagger because she's the front man distracting while the band, which are the boys, fly in, drop into this nuclear factory and do whatever they're doing. I mean, again, they don't care. The screenwriter really hasn't taken the time to invest in the plot. He's begging you not to care and to laugh he doesn't care or he knows what kind of film he's making i would argue the second or part three in editing they're like nobody cares about this let's just get to some more action and cut the exposition that would explain what's going on and admittedly in james bond films everything is explained but on one viewing i have trouble following all the machinations here i know for a fact it's just not explained but maybe they're thinking the audience is going to just go with it anyway It's all fine and well to do jokes. I wish the movie didn't cede the floor to jokes. The best scene in this movie was heavily featured in the trailer and is here when they're breaking into Ukraine, where the guys argue about which door are we going in, and then one gets stuck fighting a whole lot more goons than the other. The trailer that's got me excited for this film. (laughs) Yeah, it's the best scene in the movie. It's the best scene to demonstrate the rivalry and the chemistry. I get why you have this scene, but it's everything in this movie. And what the hallway is leading to and what the plan was, we're not supposed to care. And to me, that feels lazy. That is riding on the charm of Statham and Johnson too much. I agree with that. I mean, the scene, because they were in two parallel rooms, we're doing the split screen thing from the beginning is what we're really doing here Mm -hmm. is seeing how they fight differently. 
and it's kind of a replay of the elevator scene. If you remember, Shaw took the elevator while the other one slid down. Now the shoe's on the other foot, and Shaw's stuck in the harder part. But Shaw has no trouble. I mean, Jason Statham is a badass who's kicked a lot of ass in films, and he's just going to knock all these people out. It takes him a little longer because there's more people, but it's all for nothing because when they finally find the guy, this is the joke that is annoying to me is he has to try every single face in his group of beaten up people who he's putting up there with their eyes closed i wonder why the retina scan isn't working with the eyes closed i was wondering that too i'm like you gotta open their eyes but he finally takes the last guy and puts it up there and they're just stopped right there by brixton and a bunch of guns yeah, again, it's a delightful scene and no way in the world would you ever cut it, but it also underlines the fact that this movie doesn't have a whole point for existing. This whole quote-unquote Mick Jagger plot that they're doing is really lazy and, and half-assed. Equally lazy is now this nameless voice from Eaton has given the directive, recruit Hobbs and Shaw so that you can't just put a bullet in their head the moment you get them. Because it's Brian. He was friends with them. He worked with them. Okay, maybe. I'm sticking with that theory. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. They could go that way, but the point is that even Brixton knows this is a bad idea. He offered this to Shaw 12 years ago, joined the team, and got three bullets in the head. Why would it be different now? And, and when he tried to voice that complaint, Eaton is like, shut up. I don't want to hear logic. This is not a place for logic. We just have to follow the tropes of an action Again, nothing here is logical. It's just so that we can have them chained up, tortured, and yelling at each other until... Well, actually, it isn't Hattie that saves them, but she tries. Yeah, this is where they set up that you need a special glove to work the guns. And I believe they do have something like this. There are things that can prevent firearms from being misused or used by somebody other than the owner. Yeah, no, I've seen that Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie. I, I know this technology exists. <laughs> the thing is, it's just so clumsily inserted. I'm like, oh, this is going to be, they're going to call back on this. This is going to be a big deal later on. Yeah, they're setting up something for the climax and something for her to do as the quote-unquote hacker. But they also have this geeky scientist guy. He's the one that actually comes running in with the flamethrower they used to torture him with to save them. And so it just is another car chase. We have done all of this so that we could have a car chase where people are driving up nuclear silos and, you know, outrunning explosions. Yeah, and this one does feel the most CGI assisted. I think Arnie used to talk about them standing on the back of that truck punching each other. It feels very much green screen on a soundstage. Yeah. And there's nearly an hour left. Like, this could really be the climax. They have the machine, they're towing it away. I was checking my watch, because I did know how long going in it was, and this is like the second movie I've seen in two days, where they're having a big scene, and I'm like, is this the climax? Because... It looks like it could be the climax, and when it's over, I don't see what there is to fight about anymore, but the runtime is too short, and it doesn't feel climactic. So if this is the big final battle happening here in order to get the extraction machine, this really sucks, and no, there I should have remembered, because also featured in the trailer, is half the end battle, actually, in Samoa. Yeah, we gotta get to Samoa. Yes, if it's about family, then we have to find out this hoary backstory in which Lucas ran away from home 25 years ago because he turned their criminal father, who sold everything. Like, it's very nonspecific. He sold drugs and arms and whatever he could, probably nuclear weapons. This guy turned him in, and I guess the other brothers resent him for it, and it's led to this 25 years of silence that 
now must be broken because only one guy can fix this machine. Like, it was only one machine to get the virus out, and now there's only one guy that he knows good enough to fix the machine. I believe there's only one person that Hobbs knows who's intelligent. (laughs) I firmly believe that, especially... I mean, if he could go to his DSS people, I'm sure there's an entire building full of people who could do this, but he's on the run. He's under a time crunch. Yeah, I don't think he hangs around techies that much. I think we saw how his day is. The techies aren't in the gym with him. Yeah, here's the issue. I think there's a difference between being a car mechanic and like I watch a guy who does component level repairs on computers with with transistors and all that, which I would assume is what needs to be done with this machine to extract the virus. Like very very different skill sets, but I guess Jonah, his brother, he just knows it all. He could figure out this experimental machine. Whatever, this is a dumb movie. I had the same problem, Jacob, until I started realizing how much of car repair these days is plugging in a USB port. These days, they're doing choppers, though. They're doing old school cars. They're doing pimp my ride level cars, which I imagine has a bit of everything in it, including if you ever saw pimp my ride, here's 18 TV monitors in there. Yes. So <laughs> just what you want in your t- car. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I was able to buy it because cars today are computers. I mean, you have to buy it because there's nothing else being sold to you except <laughs> extravagant stupidity. And that's what this is, and it's proud of it, and it's all so they can do this hokey, hoary, oh, here comes Mama. Are they filming a live-action Moana? Like, this feels like <laughs> this could actually be a scene. Like, they're filming it side-by-side of, like, come over from this set and do this really quick. I liked that they were bringing in the Samoan people, though. Other than The Rock, we don't see Samoans all that often on screen. No, that is something I notice about this film. I'm like, we got an African-American. Sure, he's the villain, but whatever. Like, it's a very diverse film. We got The Rock owning up to his Samoan roots. And I, I did watch a little thing after the film with The Rock's real mom, and who is full Samoan. He's half black, half Samoan, I believe. And his mom, who's the Samoan half, she was in tears. Again, this is for a promotional video. Take it for what you will, but she was very proud that they're bringing, even though this is Hawaii, why they're bringing the Samoan people into this film. That's fine. And God knows it helps nine movies into any franchise to find things you haven't done before. So yes, great. Find new areas, new parts of the world, and explore backstories for characters we don't know well enough and all. It's just all done so clumsily. It's all, with with the same clumsiness, I should add, that Toretto always did in Invoking Family. It is just as cheesy. Oh no, this is is so much better than raising a beer to the family. Like, again, he has no charisma, so I'm just going along with this. I wish that his family had some charisma. I like his mother. I do like that. But this brother, who's this mechanic... Cliff Curtis has done a ton of movies. Like, he has played every race in film. He is Maori, but he's played everything. He's in Avatar and Avatar The Last Airbender. (laughs) I just don't feel much chemistry between him and The Rock the way I should between brothers. I feel like they just walked on set together and started saying things to each other, but I don't get any warmth. I don't get any tension. I get nothing from these two on screen together. No, the 25 years of family being disgruntled is solved with, what, a punch and a hug. And Mama threatening to slap someone with a shoe. Yeah. Apparently there is another star here. One of his brothers is actually a wrestler that's in the WWE right now. Joe Anoy. Probably the one who got to roar next to The Rock. Yeah, you never see him do anything, I don't think. If you did, I didn't recognize it as one of his cool moves, but I don't know wrestling. I like that they decided to go old school. This was in the trailers. Mama got rid of all the guns, and so they have the Samoan weapons. But it is a little cheesy that they're going to have Hattie hack the glove and turn off all their guns. 
Yeah, when, when they reveal Hattie's going to do that, I'm like, oh, okay, this is why they got the guns where you need a fingerprint or whatever, a microchip, and now they're just going to hack them and turn them off? They're not even going to make an EMP to do it? Eh, whatever. I mean, par for the course, right? This is never going to follow logic or science, and that shouldn't bother anyone that's gone with the movie this far, and should bother everyone that has hated all of this <laughs> plotting. I knew this would come down to the three main characters in a fight. It takes a lot of machinations to get there, including a stunt that I'm sure they put in because Fast and Furious people like it when cars go off cliffs. But, man. <laughs> Wouldn't this be amazing if this was actually practical? Like, I don't know how you do it, but they figured out how to do a lot of crazy stuff in Fury Road. You could have figured out how to do this daisy chain of cars in a helicopter. And wouldn't it be amazing if a person could actually throw two hooks from the back of a tow truck and hit <laughs> the car first try? Yes. <laughs> and then another car could ram the back of another one and they are hooked so tight that they can hang off a cliff like a train? Because I know what film this is, that stuff, I laughed and I'm like, oh, that's kind of stupid, but it didn't bother me. It's what bothered me more. I just wish it was more practical like it would have let me buy into it more yeah i wish it was more practical too that's my problem is the impracticability of this movie you know what i mean practical effects and more logic would both be appreciated by me at this point but more to jacob's point i actually think some movies announce they're stupid and you're foolish for pushing against it but i think any action movie owes the audience to buy into the believability of the moment of the thrill of a car dangling off a cliff if you're not impressed by that then that is on them. And yes, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of exploding cars and cars that have been rigged up to encircle Brixton with fire. But Jason Statham, if it's in their contract that he has to look as cool as The Rock, needs to sue somebody because nothing Jason Statham does in this movie looks as cool as Samoan Superman pulling a helicopter down <laughs> single with one arm. Yeah, again, it's kind of ridiculous, and I rolled my eyes at that. But the fact that taking the guns offline applied to a helicopter, too, because this whole time I'm like, why isn't the helicopter firing? They got, like, missiles. They can't fire. I get why the guns aren't working, but all of it's ridiculous. And at some point, they turn the guns back on. They say they have, like, six minutes where they won't be able to use their guns. Oh, okay. Oh, so they didn't necessarily want them to come back online. They only had... You know, there's a lot of time limit. She's got 30 minutes or 25 minutes left to get the virus extracted. There's lots of ticking clocks going off here. This machine does nothing but extract the virus. It was built just to extract this virus, and it takes a half an hour? It is so poorly constructed. I don't know what's going on here. I know that they're stalling, and I know they think they're giving the audience what they want, which is this extended love of vehicles doing impossible things. And maybe people do love it. I have no gauge for it. I know I have no patience for it. I doubt you bought into this, Stuart, but I will say the audience I, I was with, they were getting into this. They were cheering, they were clapping, they were adrenalized by it. I'm feeling like we're right back in Fast and Furious 6 conversation, where Stuart and I, Stuart had real trouble with the tank, I was kind of going with the tank, and you were just jumping up and down excited with the tank. Yeah, the dumber it is, the better it is. <laughs> I feel that's exactly where we are with this movie and its level of, in my words, stupidity. Yeah, because I think all of these movies are stupid. So when they own up to it and go full stupid, at least they're being honest with me, not trying to pull off like some Dom Tretto, it's all about family, like bullshit. No, it's about stupid stunts that you're going to do. Show me that. And I'm going to quote Robert Downey Jr. Never go full stupid. <laughs> mm. I, it's pretty stupid when they realize, I mean, it's just so cheesy. After school special, really, that Hobbs and Shaw know that they have to work together in order to score a punch in against Brixton. Now, here's what I like from David Leach. That top-down shot, 
in the rain where you see, you know, the pillars of rain on top of these people. And when the fights connect, yeah, it's a little video gamey where the fight connects and it's in slow motion to show you how cool it is. I'm actually playing a video game right now that does just that with finishing moves. But man, it looked good to see, you know, they decided each one has to take a hit in order to get a hit. So when Brixton punches Hobbs in the face or Shaw can get that elbow in and all of this, I actually really, really like this fight. You, you know what's funny? I Again, I watched another behind the scenes feature and David Leach loved the slow-mo stuff. He was so proud of it. You know how they do this? They just move in slow motion. Like, they're not, like, punching each other at full speed. They are punching each other in slow motion. Like, remember when we made movies as kids and you wanted that slow motion scene? Mm-hmm. So you would just move slowly and, like, pretend you're running really fast? Like, that's what they had to do. I have filled with that, yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I did that all the time when I make movies with my friends. It's like, okay, we wanted slow motion so it looks cool. And you just run like in place really slow. It looks silly, but that's what they were doing. And then, yeah, then they enhance it with camera tricks and all that. But Jason Statham hated this stuff. The slow motion and being soaked in the fake rain. And he said it was freezing cold. He was not happy about this fight scene. And it's Edian that it ends up breaking up the fight, right? Because the virus gets extracted and she gets free, Brixton has essentially failed. Uh, He could live on to fight another day but Eaton just makes the decision to throw a kill switch and he falls off the waterfall and into the ocean. And I think he says, I've known you before, Hobbs. So whoever this voice is, I think it was a person at one point who's probably a dead villain who was, again, my theory, uploaded and now doesn't have a body. But that's who Eaton is. And yeah, it's not so crazy to think it's Paul Walker. I mean, it would be certainly melodramatic. I just don't see them crossing the Toretto family storyline with this world. I think that they are going to do everything they can to keep the rock away from Vin Diesel. I don't know how you have Eaton contained in one film when they are the specter of this Fast and Furious universe now. But I agree with Stuart. They're the specter of the Hobbs and Shaw universe, which, you know, at no point I expected more cameos. The cameos I got were Ryan Reynolds and Kevin Hart. The cameos I expected were maybe a phone call from Jordana Brewster or Letty or somebody, you know, ludicrous to pop up when gets a phone call. I knew Vin wasn't going to show up. Although I wondered if there'd be an end credit stinger that would lead into the next Fast and Furious film, a la Marvel. But I knew Vin wasn't going to interact with The Rock. But as for the rest of them, I thought there might be some and there weren't. Maybe the whole thing is Elsa Pataki. Remember her? No. (laughs) She was kind of... Hobbs' partner for a couple movies, and she... Oh, was that the South American cop? Uh-huh. Vaguely. Okay. Vague, vague <laughs> yeah. memories you're pulling out of the darkest recesses of my junk pile in my brain. Again, I just watched that YouTube video about the chronology. That's the only reason I remember. I'm just trying to think of, since Fast Five, who are the characters who have dropped out? I mean, who else have we had in the way of bad guys, and... I suspect they have a list of candidates of who it could be. I think you're right. They'll figure it out as they go along. It really doesn't matter. It's whoever they can get that will be of maximum impact when they finally want to reveal it. Well, what, three years from now or something. Meanwhile, we find out that family is healed. The Rock is going to bring his little girl to meet grandma and brother and sister are no longer estranged. They're going to go bring a C4 cake to mama in prison, which means she's busted out, right? Like they're now abating a criminal. Like they were all law abiding and now Hattie and Deckard are are criminals again. But it's about family. I think Deckard has always been a criminal. Really? I mean, he was British Secret Services, 
and then he w- went rogue, but he was framed, and then he was like a rogue killer. And then I thought the whole point of Hattie's turn was that she could accept her brother as somebody that was law-abiding. I'm not sure where we're at, but I do know that Helen Mirren is coming back for Fast and Furious 9. Really? Mm -hmm. So there is some crossover there. Yep. And I guess Vin has nothing against Statham, and Statham needs work. But what I took this as is, remember, they were running jobs like the McJagger as kids. So they were criminal children who both went into MI6 and both got framed for MI6, but both have a moral ambiguity that a life of crime isn't a bad thing as long as it's, you know, justifiable crime and not blowing up Han in a car. Did you know Idris Elba was actually a DJ? Yes, I couldn't believe it when this end rap came and it's like he's rapping about being Superman. I'm like, did they get Idris Elba to rap? And I did know he was a DJ, but I've never seen him DJ. I just have this mental image of Heimdall DJing. (laughs) I saw him do it at Coachella when they were streaming their live shows. I'm like, is that Idris? Really? He's a DJ? Like, it's like Idris Elba scratching the records. And so I did wait. It's Idris Elba with Cypress Hill, and I love Cypress Hill. I actually liked this rap. Cypress Hill? Where'd they dig them up? (laughs) They must be all machine parts by now. I can't imagine that that anything would be left of their insane membrane. I have all their albums up to 2007, and they did much better songs than that one. That was my second favorite song in this movie. The first one being a singer I'm going to have to look up, A Dollar Sign Ton Wild with Next Level. I really liked that song during the Let's Investigate montage. Hashtag I don't care. I mean, okay. (laughs) These are the kinds of new music artists that I don't really respond to i don't i don't know anything about this this music wasn't made for me this movie wasn't made for me these last stingers give me nothing it's weird because they're gonna pull out like old 70s hits from jim croce but they're gonna be new artists covering them like not quite guardians there and i felt like days of future past used time in a bottle much better than the opening scene of this but i'm glad that i follow the rock on instagram because he did say stay until the very end credits i was in a full theater And it was mostly old people, but not entirely old people. I'm sure some of them could have held their water until the lights came up. I was the only person in a full theater to stay until the lights came up. It kept playing scenes during the credits. I don't know how you don't stay, which was weird because, again, almost two and a half hours I noticed with this film. If you watch a lot of low-budget action films, or even like Rumble in the Bronx, like if you've seen that, Jackie Chan defeats the bad guy and roll credits. There is no, like, the people coming together. Oh, you say, like, it's just, okay, bad guy defeated, end the film. And that's more or less how this is, but then it's like, oh, but here's the other stuff that you would expect with the normal ending. We'll just show it during the credits. Because we couldn't fit it in during the two hours and 20 minutes that we had. Hey, Lethal Weapon 2 did the same thing. I mean, not a good comparison. Don't (laughs) compare this to Lethal Weapon 2. Not going to make me like it. It gives you more jokes, not any more plots. We see Ryan Reynolds riffing a lot more about how another virus that eats your exterior is now loose. And I laughed at that. The first one was interior. This one will make you melt. You know, it's Ryan Reynolds riffing and again, a lot more Hobbs setting up Shaw. He sent the cops to strip him and do a a strip search at his bar. And I stayed till the very last thing. And it's even more Ryan Reynolds of, hey, I stabbed a guy in the chest with a brick, which was a callback to him discussing earlier how Superman Brixton had to be in order to use a brick as a stabbing weapon. I wanted more from a final end stinger than just Ryan Reynolds doing what he had done mid-credits about, oh, there's another virus and I'm in the hallway with these guys. I wanted a tease for something. Like Fast and Furious 9? 
Fast and Furious 9, Hobbs and Shaw 2, reveal who the voice is. Give me something other than this. Yeah, I thought for sure we were going to get a reveal of who the voice was. I think they don't know yet. I mean, not just of the voice. No, I agree with that now that I've seen it. Yeah. This is the first time they've had a spinoff. It could be the last time. They want to see the reaction. Uh, 60 million in the US, 180 million opening worldwide. We'll probably get another one. Yeah, I think when we get Hobbs and Shaw 2, we are going to have stingers that tease future sequels. Well, whether or not we want them, do you think this will get a sequel? Because I I mean, yes, Jacob, 60 million domestic makes this adjusted for inflation the lowest opening ever for a Fast and Furious film and not adjusted for inflation uh, the lowest since 2009. I mean, I expected a bigger opening for this. A bigger? I think they're damn lucky. I mean, this will probably end up grossing close to 200 million. That's about what Fast and Furious movies do in the States. It's really abroad where they make their, I mean, like literally it'll pull in a billion dollars when you add in the international box office. International is where I think they have to look because this movie costs 200 million. That has been the case for the last several Fast and Furious movies. They've all broken even in the States and then the gravy comes in the countries that don't know English and don't need to. In fact, I think this movie would benefit if you don't know English. (laughs) Would it, though? Because that would just make it an action movie, and I'm arguing this is a comedy. Yeah, it's a comedy action film. I'll agree with that. And so the verbal counts for something. Well, is it a recommendable action comedy film? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Hobbs and Shaw? Jacob. The way I approach films, there's films that know they don't have any budget and they're not going to pretend they're anything but like a low budget, like Mangler, all those Mangler films. And then there's films, they got a budget, they got money, they know they're stupid. I don't know if you guys saw 2018 Robin Hood, which is like one of the worst reviewed films of that year, but that movie opens up like with voiceover, just like... Eh, we don't know what time it is. Who cares? Just roll with what this movie says. That's why no one's in time period appropriate clothing. They're all wearing leather jackets. It knows it's stupid, and I could at least respect it for that. Like, I enjoyed that film because, okay, they're not trying to say they're sophisticated or this is a well-done film. They know it's a stupid action film. They're telling me that right up front. And that that's what I appreciate about Hobbs and Shaw. It is a dumb action film. It doesn't really try for anything greater than being that, except for its running length. It should have gone stupid action film, 90 to 100 minutes and stuck there. It goes on a bit too long. But what works for me, the humor, again, I, I laughed a lot in the for the first half and then they kind of repeat a lot of the jokes, but it still got chuckles out of me. Not great stunt work, but you know, for a action film, that relies on a lot of CGI, as most do these days. It's fine. I'd watch it. You know, you're calling it a cop buddy film. I'd watch it before any of those Lethal Weapon films that we reviewed this summer. Better than any of those. I'm just going to put that out there. Kevin Hart, better than Leo Getz. I'll just put that out there. I will watch this before any Lethal Weapon film. Who knows if it will age as well, though? It might just seem as dumb to me in 20 years as those Lethal films seem now. When I, I'm sure when they came out, I didn't hate them as much. But yeah, it's a silly action film with a lot of dick jokes. If that sounds like what you're into, you're going to enjoy this movie. I I could give this a recommend because it knows what it is. It it gives some adrenalized moments and it got some laughs out of me. Stuart. Yeah, how to evaluate this movie. I hear you're struggling. I get, You almost do have to skew it with a particular type in mind. I made my mind up early that I was not going to give this a green arrow because I think it's better than most of the Fast and Furious entries. Because I've kind of graded on that curve and given the past, I didn't want to do that this time. They're saying that this is a universe expanding. Well, then it should be able to be better than what Toretto's family did. 
And yet I'm also a believer that you need to find a way to grade on a curve when you don't like what's being presented to you. I wouldn't choose to watch this. I don't care for chocolate. Okay, so if you're offering me a Hershey's Kiss, I need to at least be able to tell you how it is compared to a box of Godiva's, even though they all leave a bad taste in my mouth. And so, yes, I'm on the record. I hate smug, hyperbolic action comedy movies. I didn't recommend either Bad Boys. It took me 10 hours to sit through Face Off. It's not my thing. But if it were, (laughs) obviously there's a big audience for that kind of junk. And clearly Hobbs and Shaw wants to appeal to that audience. So did they succeed in pleasing that audience by my estimation? I had to gauge it by going back and watching, quote, the greatest movie of all time, Tango and Cash. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) That is how teenage Arnie described the Sylvester Stallone, Kurt Russell, shoot him up to me 30 years ago. And I sat down and watched that movie. After shuffling out of this theater, I said, you know what this reminds me of? I got to go back and watch that FUBAR 1989 film and found a lot of similarities, actually, including a she's not my girlfriend, she's my sister subplot and an obsession with cool motor vehicles and a torture scene involving electricity. It's almost the same movie in many respects. And you'd think I would hate Tango and Cash more, but I actually found myself more entertained by its tacky caveman worldview. I actually think because it's so pre- proud to condition the 80s generation to believe masculinity is a measure of fistfights and one-liners and who's got the biggest gun. It's funny in the same way that Reefer Madness is funny to me. Like, you just can't believe we fell for their lies, is, is how I feel about that movie. You can't believe that anyone ever took that seriously. Hobbs and Shaw, by contrast, seems to have no agenda other than milking our nostalgia for 80s action movies. It's going through the motions with credible stunts, meh one-liners, a plot that really doesn't ask to be cared about. It's outrageousness, but it doesn't buy into its own outrageousness. It's just kind of an unmemorable, loud experience. I suspect if you like Lethal Weapon and Commando and Bad Boys, you might like this movie too, but I'd guess you'd never like it more than those films. And I do think that if you're going to go back and try to reinvent a genre, bring it back in a new way like Scream did for the slasher films, you got to be willing to make capital improvements and make something that is smarter and elevated. They didn't elevate Tango and Cash. They made something just as dumb as Tango and Cash. And for that reason, I feel comfortable saying, eh, it's a pretty mild red arrow. That was as long a path to get to a not recommend as this movie was to get to the final fight. I really struggled. (laughs) I stayed up all night going, how do I look at this film? The lazy way would have been to say not recommend. I didn't enjoy it. I tried to think about who would enjoy it. And I don't think that if you love the old 80s sly Arnold movies, you're going to think this is better. At best, it's on par. And see, I think what appealed to my wife, who loved this film, like, loved it as much as Deadpool and Venom, which are also films she loved, you could kind of get your barometer there of what appeals to her. It's, yeah, a lot of silly jokes. And, yeah, she has no love for action films. The fact that this was a lot of uh, dick jokes, that's what appealed to her. Well, I consider myself the audience for this film. I don't have to project what people who like this film would be, because I was excited for this film. I like The Rock I'd say about half the time, especially when he's paired with a good person, and I've liked Jason Statham in a lot of stuff for many, many years. But I went in with middle expectations. I mean, I don't expect these guys to deliver 
an action film along the lines of Inception ever, you know? <laughs> but I went in thinking that this would entertain me. And truthfully, for the first hour, it did. That's when I decided, okay, this movie's really freaking stupid, but I'm having fun and I can go along for the ride. But the longer it went, the more goodwill it eroded. So when I walked out of the movie, I was really torn because I found myself annoyed by a lot of the movie and just the relentless stupidity and the charisma of the two actors is omnipresent. And I chuckled. I never guffawed, but I, except for the Mike Oxmall. But other than that one guffaw, I, I chuckled at their jokes from the beginning to the end. And I really did like the cameos. I lit up when Kevin Hart and Ryan Reynolds got on screen. But in the end, I just feel let down by this film and I know it's making a lot of money, and I know people of all ages are seeing it in my theater, but I gotta say this is a weak not recommend. You know, it's okay, but I just can't endorse this film. I'm the only one to recommend this one. This is, truly is a, a Fast and Furious 6 moment. I guess the dumber they're willing to admit they are, the more I'm willing to go with it. And I'm willing to say that if I were ranking it on the scale of Fast and Furious, it would be on the higher end. I liked it better than at least three or four of them. But I didn't want to do that. Again, I felt like this movie had an opportunity to be more by expanding the universe. And I think that, yeah, if you go back and you redo a genre, they're so clearly in love with the 80s cop genre you got to do more with it. Like, you got to do what Hot Fuzz did with it. You got to be smart. I get what you're saying, Stuart, because I remember that was my disappointment with The Expendables. It seemed rife for some postmodern deconstruction with 80s action heroes. And it gives you an 80s action film. Yeah. I don't think they do any better with this. For all of their money and all the time spent, they have some stars that I find more charismatic than the action he-men of the 80s. But charisma only gets you so far. And it doesn't get you a green from me. Yeah, I wanted to recommend this film. I really did. And that's why I say I'm the audience for this. I was down for just some good action. But man, David Leach let me down in this one. I feel like he has brought more to every other production he did. Here, you know, Deadpool 2, this emphasis was not on action, you know, and it was not on practical effects by any means. But what he did is he made it funny and he kept me going with the character. And it also had a story to which I actually felt a little bit invested with that kid who was despondent and wanted to burn down the school. Here, the story let me down and the action let me down. I ended up becoming pretty numb throughout mm -hmm. the film. I think that's a fair assessment. I, again, I, even you, Jacob, predict that in a couple of years, maybe some of this charm will have worn off. It's, oh, yeah, no, I, I fully admit that. It's in the moment. And again, I agree. If you like the trailer, it's a good indication whether you're going to enjoy the movie or not. But I think the best stuff is in the trailer. I think all you really need to see is that scene of them walking down the hallways. You don't need two and a half hours. You need two and a half minutes. Yeah, that is the best scene. That's the best and only thing they're going to do in the movie yeah that's where i was at is i liked the trailer if the movie had been as good as the trailer then i would have recommended the film well we're still going to be getting more fast and furious i predict we're going to get more hobbs and shaw but that is yet to be determined when they bean counters weigh in they'll decide whether there's more in the future for these two but they are not going to be participating in the movie coming out in 2020 summer 2020 we get fast and furious 9 it's of course going to have vin diesel michelle rodriguez tyrese Ludacris, some old friends from previous they're going to have charlie's their own back they're apparently going to have the white guy from tokyo drift back really that's the rumor anyway and then the new guy they're bringing in makes sense another wrestler john cena fresh from bumblebee 
Yeah, I notice he's trying to have a career now. He was in those Daddy Homes films. He was in Blockers. I saw some Fireman movie poster that he's going to be in. So I guess he's trying to be the next draw. Believe it or not, he even like subbed for Kathy Lee Gifford on the Hoda and Kathy Lee show for a while. Very strange. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> he has an outreach towards even female. I think women like him. And so that helps. I don't know. I'm not excited by it, but... Obviously, Vin is not enough to carry the franchise anymore, and The Rock left. So, yeah, let's try bringing in John Cena. I don't, I feel like this is a franchise running out of gas for me, and it's a franchise I liked a lot coming into it back when we did part seven. But eight, this, maybe this needs a tune up. Yeah, you know what? It needs something like Fast Five. It needs to completely do something to jazz it up. And maybe that's what this film was supposed to do. They recognize there's only so many times you can call car thieves to save the world. And so I know I'm not excited about it. And it seems like the mentality is if we just keep finding people of the right type to throw in there, it will give it new life. John Cena is the future. And then I hear they're shooting them back to back. Fast and the Furious 10 is going to bring back Hobbs and Shaw in some way. And that movie comes out 2021. Maybe we'll finally find out who the voice is. Maybe there is a plan. Maybe it will all tie together in an Avengers-like Furious 10. But I gotta say, I'm much more excited for next week's movie, a Melissa McCarthy film, than I am for the return of Vin Diesel in The Fast and Furious. <laughs> wow. And there's words I never thought I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that's, my eyes are just huge right now. Okay, but yeah, yes, this is not a Melissa McCarthy film. This is a DC comic book film, and that is why we are covering it. Because when, Jacob, when was this a comic book, The Kitchen? No, this is based off of Vertigo, which that's like the adult. It's not always superheroes, and this doesn't look like it's superheroes. This looks like a crime film. But yes, Vertigo published this in the last 10 years, I'm going to say. And yeah, no radiation is going to fall on Melissa McCarthy or Tiffany Haddish. They're not going to turn into superheroes. This is going to be a gritty, Scorsese-like 70s crime film. Kind of reminds me in feel of Road to Perdition, another DC Vertigo comic. Mm. And one that I didn't care for. But yeah, fingers crossed that they deliver something that's decent. And in between, we're going to have another film set in the 70s, but this one made 20 years ago. Boogie Nights, yes. Excited for this. Paul Thomas Anderson. We've never covered any of his films, and I know there's a big fan base for it. There, he's got a really strange resume, and this was his first breakout hit. I remember really liking it, and yeah, who doesn't want to talk about porn in the 70s? Or 80s or 90s or 2000s. <laughs> right. Well, that's Friday for our patrons of $10 or more. And then next week, The Kitchen for Everyone. And the week after that, Angry Birds 2. I'm sorry, <laughs> Angry Podcast Hosts 2. <laughs> yeah, the summer is finally here. <laughs> wow. what? A, yeah, prestige art house, boogie nights, gritty crime drama, The Kitchen, and Angry Birds 2. The summer is finally complete. It's here. I've been living for this one, man. I couldn't wait to get to that. <laughs> and then we'll do it. We'll do what? Yeah, the Stephen King clown, Pennywise. Oh, another kid's movie. Yeah, sort of. So thank you, listeners, for coming back for another Furious film. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week. Is it now playing? That's how we roll. Father, thank you for the gathering of friends. Father, we give thanks for all the choices we've made because that's what makes us who we are. 
Let us forever cherish the loved ones we've lost along the way. And most of all, thank you for Fast Cars. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You tell your boss exactly who did this. Tell him there's more coming. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. You gotta get out of here. I ain't running anymore. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find more movie reviews, including Pitch Black, Rambo, Robocop, The Avengers, and hundreds more. You say what? This just went from Mission Impossible to Mission and Freaking Sanity. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You're in. There's always room for family. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Sounds like a whole lot of vaginal activity to me. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. I'll see you soon, Toretto. Your pockets ain't enough. Ours are empty. We hungry. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. We got the best crew in the world standing right in front of you. Give them a reason to stay. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. You don't realize how much you appreciate something until somebody takes it away. Everybody take a real good look. This is what you call mutual respect. All right, let's clear out. Anybody down for another race? Now Playing's Fast and Furious series is edited by Arnie. Let's put all this mess back together. That's going to take a while. Then you better get started. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Why me? Because you got the biggest mouth. That's for damn sure. Now Playing is not affiliated with Universal Pictures or the makers or distributors of these films. The film discussed in this podcast is the intellectual property of its copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You see, I got a problem with authority. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just because you know how I ride doesn't mean you know me. Show me how you drive, I'll show you who you are. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Money will come and go. We know that. The most important thing in life will always be the people in this room. Right here. Right now. Salute me, familia. And when Brixton is defeated, the shadowy leader of Eaton... The shadowy leader of Eaton... The shadowy leader of Eaton... Yeah, I think that when we get Shobbs and Shobbs and Hall, um, <laughs>